Chapter fifty one, part two of a popular history of France from the earliest times, volume six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter fifty one Louis the fifteenth, the Regency, and Cardinal Dubois, seventeen fifteen to seventeen twenty two, part two. At the pinnacle of his power and success, the new controller-general fell into no illusion as to the danger of the position. Quote, he had been forced to raise seven stories on foundations which he had laid for only three, said a contemporary, as clear-sighted as impartial. Some large shareholders were already beginning to quietly realize their profits. The warrants of the Compagnie des Indes had been assimilated to the banknotes and the enormous quantity of paper tended to lower its value. First there was a prohibition against making payments in silver above ten francs, and in gold above three hundred. Soon afterwards money was dislegalized as a tender, and orders were issued to take every kind to the bank on pain of confiscation, half to go to the informer. Informing became a horrible trade. A son denounced his father, the regent openly violated law and had this miscreant punished. The prince one day saw President Lambert de Vernon coming to visit him. Quote, I am come, said the latter, to denounce to your royal highness a man who has five hundred thousand livres in gold. The Duke of Orleans drew back a step. Ah, oh, Mr. President, he cried, what low vocation have you taken to? Quote, monseigneur rejoined the president i am obeying the law but your royal highness may be quite easy it is myself whom i have come to denounce in hopes of retaining at least a part of this sum which i prefer to all the bank-notes my money is at the king's service was the proud remark of nicolai premier president of the exchequer chamber but it belongs to nobody the great mass of the nation was of the same opinion as the two presidents. Forty-five millions only found their way to the bank. Gold and silver were concealed everywhere. The crisis was becoming imminent. Law boldly announced that the value of the notes was reduced by a half. The public outcry was so violent that the regent was obliged to withdraw the edict, as to which the council had not been consulted. Quote, since law became controller-general his head has been turned said the prince that same evening law was arrested by the major of the swiss it was believed to be all over with him but the admirable order in which were his books kept by double entry after the italian manner as yet unknown in france and the ingenious expedients he indicated for restoring credit gave his partisans a moment's fresh confidence he ceased to be controller-general but he remained director of the bank. The death-blow, however, had been dealt his system, for a panic-terror had succeeded to the insensate enthusiasm of the early days. The Prince of Conti had set the example of getting back the value of his notes. Four wagons had been driven up to his house laden with money. It was suffocation at the doors of the bank, changing small notes, the only ones now payable in specie. Three men were crushed to death on one day in the crowd. It was found necessary to close the entrances to Quincampoix Street in order to put a stop to the feverish tumult arising from desperate speculation. 
the multitude moved to the place vendome shops and booths were thrown up there was a share fair this ditty was everywhere sung in the streets Quote, on monday i bought share on share on tuesday i was a millionaire on wednesday took a grand abode on thursday in my carriage road on friday drove to the opera ball on saturday came to the pauper's hall to restore confidence law conceived the idea of giving the seals back to d'aguesseau and the regent authorized him to set out for Fresnes. in allusion to this step so honourable for the magistrate who was the object of it law afterwards wrote from venice to the regent quote, in my labours i desire to be useful to a great people as the chancellor can bear me witness at his return i offered him my shares which were then worth more than a hundred millions to be distributed by him amongst those who had need of them the chancellor came back though his influence could neither stop the evil nor even assuage the growing disagreement between the duke of orleans and the parliament none could restore the public sense of security none could prevent the edifice from crumbling to pieces with ruin came crimes count horn belonging to the family of the celebrated count horn who was beheaded under philip the second in company with count la morale d'egmont murdered at an inn a poor jobber whom he had inveigled thither on purpose to steal his pocket-book in spite of all his powerful family's entreaties count horn died on the wheel together with one of his accomplices it was represented to the regent that the count's house had the honour of being connected with his quote, very well gentlemen said he then i will share the shame with you End quote. and he remained inflexible the public wrath and indignation fastened henceforth upon law the author and director of a system which had given rise to so many hopes and had been the cause of so many woes his carriage was knocked to pieces in the streets president de mem entered the grand chamber singing with quite a solemn air quote, sir sirs great news what is it it's they've smashed law's carriage all to bits the whole body jumped up more regardful of their hatred than of their dignity and is law torn to pieces was the cry law had taken refuge at the palais royal one day he appeared at the theatre in the regent's box low murmurs recalled to the regent's mind the necessity for prudence in the end he got law away secretly in a carriage lent him by the duke of bourbon law had brought with him to france a considerable fortune yet scarcely enough to live upon when he retired to venice where he died some years later seventeen twenty nine convinced to the last of the utility of his system at the same time that he acknowledged the errors he had committed in its application Quote, i do not pretend that i did not make mistakes he wrote from his retreat i know i did and that if i had to begin again i should do differently i should go more slowly but more surely and i should not expose the state in my own person to the dangers which may attend the derangement of a general system Quote, there was neither avarice nor rascality in what he did says saint simon he was a gentle kind respectful man whom excess of credit and of fortune had not spoilt and whose bearing equipage table and furniture could not offend anybody he bore with singular patience and evenness the obstructions that were raised against his operations until at the last finding himself short of means 
and nevertheless seeking for them and wishing to present a front, he became crusty, gave way to temper, and his replies were frequently ill-considered. He was a man of system, calculation, comparison, well-informed and profound in that sort of thing, who was the dupe of his Mississippi, and in good faith believed in forming great and wealthy establishments in America. He reasoned English-wise, and did not know how opposed to those kinds of establishments are the levity of our nation and the inconveniences of a despotic government, which has a finger in everything, and under which what one minister does is always destroyed or changed by his successor." The disasters caused by Law's system have recoiled upon his memory. Forgotten are his honesty, his charity, his interest in useful works. Remembered is nothing but the imprudence of his chimerical hopes and the fatal result of his enterprises, as deplorable in their effects upon the moral condition of France as upon her wealth and her credit. The regent's rash infatuation for a system, as novel as it was seductive, had borne its fruits. The judgment which his mother had pronounced upon Philip of Orleans was justified to the last. Quote, the fairies, said Madame, were all invited to the birth of my son, and each endowed him with some happy quality. But one wicked fairy, who had been forgotten, came likewise, leaning upon her stick, and not being able to annul her sister's gifts, declared that the prince should never know how to make use of them. End quote. Throughout the successive periods of intoxication and despair caused by the necessary and logical development of Law's system, the Duke of Orléans had dealt other blows and directed other affairs of importance. Easy-going, indolent, often absorbed by his pleasures, the regent found no great difficulty in putting up with the exaltation of the legitimatized princes. It had been for him sufficient to wrest authority from the Duke of Maine he let him enjoy the privileges of a prince of the blood. Quote, I kept silence during the king's lifetime, he would say. I will not be mean enough to break it now he is dead. But the Duke of Bourbon, heir of the house of Condé, fierce in temper, violent in his hate, greedy of honours as well as of money, had just arrived at man's estate, and was wroth at sight of the bastard's greatness. He drew after him the Count of Charolais, his brother, and the Prince of Conti, his cousin. On the 22nd of April, 1716, all three presented to the King a request for the revocation of Louis XIV's edict declaring his legitimatized sons princes of the blood, and capable of succeeding to the throne. The Duchess of Maine, generally speaking very indifferent about her husband, whom she treated haughtily, like a true daughter of the House of Condé, flew into a violent passion, this time at her cousin's unexpected attack. She was for putting her own hand to the work of drawing up the memorial of her husband and of her brother-in-law, the Count of Toulouse. Quote, the greater part of the knights was employed at it, says Madame de Stael, at that time Mademoiselle de Launay, a person of much wit, half lady's maid, half reader to the Duchess. Quote, the huge volumes, heaped up on her bed like mountains overwhelming her, caused her, she used to say, to look, making due allowances, like Enceladus, buried under Mount Etna. I was present at the work, and I also used to turn over the leaves of old chronicles and of ancient and modern jurisconsults, until excess of fatigue disposed the princess to take some repose. 
all this toil ended in the following declaration on the part of the legitimatized princes quote, the affair being one of state cannot be decided but by a king who is a major or indeed by the states-general at the same time and still at the instigation of the duchess of maine thirty-nine noblemen signed a petition modestly addressed to our lords of the parliament demanding in their turn that the affair should be referred to the states-general who alone were competent when it was a question of the succession to the throne the regent saw the necessity of firmness quote, it is a maxim he declared that the king is always a major as regards justice that which was done without the states-general has no need of their intervention to be undone the decree of the council of regency based on the same principles suppressed the right of succession to the crown and cut short all pretensions on the part of the legitimatized princes issue to the rank of princes of the blood the rights thereto were maintained in the case of the duke of maine and the count of toulouse for their lives by the bounty of the regent quote, which did not prevent the duchess of maine from uttering loud shrieks like a maniac says st simon or the duchess of orleans from weeping night and day and refusing for two months to see anybody of the thirty-nine members of the nobility who had signed the petition to parliament six were detained in prison for a month after which the duke of orleans pardoned them quote, you know me well enough to be aware that i am only nasty when i consider myself positively obliged to be he said to them the patrons whose cause these noblemen had lightly embraced were not yet at the end of their humiliations the duke of bourbon was not satisfied with their exclusion from the succession to the throne he claimed the king's education which belonged of right he said to the first prince of the blood being a major in his hatred then towards the legitimatized he accepted with alacrity the duke of st simon's proposal to simply reduce them to their rank by seniority in the peerage with the proviso of afterwards restoring the privileges of a prince of the blood in favour of the count of toulouse alone as a reward for his services in the navy the blow thus dealt gratified all the passions of the house of conde and the wrath of law as well as the keeper of the seals d'argenson against the parliament which for three months past had refused to enregister all edicts on the twenty fourth of august seventeen eighteen at six in the morning the parliament received orders to repair to the tuileries where the king was to hold a bed of justice the duke of maine who was returning from a party was notified as colonel of the swiss to have his regiment under arms at eight o'clock the council of regency was already assembled the duke of maine and the count of toulouse arrived in peers robes the regent had flattered himself that they would not come to the bed of justice and had not summoned them yet once advanced towards the count of toulouse and said out loud that he was surprised to see him in his robes and that he had not thought proper to notify him of the bed of justice because he knew that since the last edict he did not like going to the parliament the count of toulouse replied that that was quite true but that when it was a question of the welfare of the state he put every other consideration aside the regent was disconcerted he hesitated a moment then speaking low and very earnestly to the count of toulouse he returned to st simon quote, i have just told him all said he i couldn't help it he is the best fellow in the world and the one who touches my heart the most he was coming to me on behalf of his brother 
but a shrewd notion that there was something in the wind and that he did not stand quite well with me he had begged him to ask me whether i wished him to remain or whether he would not do well to go away i confess to you that i thought i did well to tell him that his brother would do just as well to go away since he asked me the question that as for himself he might safely remain because he was to continue just as he is without alteration but that something might take place rather disagreeable to m dumaine whereupon he asked me how he could remain when there was to be an attack upon his brother seeing that they were but one both in point of honour and as brothers i do believe there they are just going out added the regent casting a glance towards the door as the members of the council were beginning to take their places they will be prudent the count of toulouse promised me so quote, but if they were to do anything foolish or were to leave paris quote, they shall be arrested i give you my word replied the duke of orleans in a firmer tone than usual they had just read the decree reducing the legitimized to their degree in the peerage and m le duc had claimed the superintendence of the king's education when it was announced that the parliament in their scarlet robes were arriving in the court of the palace marshal de Villois alone dared to protest quote, here then said he with a sigh are all the late king's dispositions upset i cannot see it without sorrow m dumaine is very unfortunate quote, sir rejoined the regent with animation m dumaine is my brother-in-law but i prefer an open to a hidden enemy with the same air the duke of orleans passed to the bed of justice quote, with a gentle but resolute majesty which was quite new to him eyes observant but bearing grave and easy m le duc stead circumspect surrounded by a sort of radiance that adorned his whole person and under perceptible restraint the keeper of the seals in his chair motionless gazing askance with that witful fire which flashed from his eyes and which seemed to pierce all bosoms in presence of that parliament which had so often given him orders standing at its bar as chief of police in presence of that premier president so superior to him so haughty so proud of his duke of maine so mightily in hopes of the seals after his speech and the reading of the king's decree the premier president was for attempting a remonstrance d'argenson mounted the step approached the young king and then without taking any opinion said in a very loud voice quote, the king desires to be obeyed and obeyed at once there was nothing further for it but to unregister the edict all the decrees of the parliament were quashed some old servants of louis the fourteenth friends and confidants of the duke of maine alone appeared moved the young king was laughing and the crowd of spectators were amusing themselves with the scene without any sensible interest in the court intrigues the duchess of maine made her husband pay for his humble behaviour at the council Quote, she was says saint simon at one time motionless with grief at another boiling with rage and her poor husband wept daily like a calf at the biting reproaches and strange insults which she had incessantly to pocket in her fits of anger against him in the excess of her indignation and wrath the duchess of maine determined not to confine herself to reproaches she had passed her life in elegant entertainments in sprightly and frivolous intellectual amusements ever bent on diverting herself 
she made up her mind to taste the pleasure of vengeance and set on foot a conspiracy as frivolous as her diversions the object however was nothing less than to overthrow the duke of orleans and to confer the regency on the king of spain philip v with a council and a lieutenant who was to be the duke of maine Quote, when one has once acquired no matter how the rank of prince of the blood and the capability of succeeding to the throne said the duchess one must turn the state upside down and set fire to the four corners of the kingdom rather than let them be wrested from one the schemes for attaining this great result were various and confused philip v had never admitted that his renunciation of the crown of france was seriously binding upon him he had seen by the precedent of the war of devolution how a powerful sovereign may make sport of such acts his italian minister alberoni an able and crafty man who had set the crown of spain upon the head of elizabeth farnese and had continued to rule her cautiously egged on his master into hostilities against france they counted upon the parliaments taking example from that of paris on the whole of brittany in revolt at the prolongation of the tithe tax on all the old court accustomed to the yoke of the bastards and of madame de maintenon on languedoc of which the duke of maine was the governor they talked of carrying off the duke of orleans and of taking him to the castle of toledo alberoni promised the assistance of a spanish army the duchess of maine had fired the train without the knowledge she said and probably against the will too of her husband more indolent than she in his perfidy some scatter-brains of great houses were mixed up in the affair messieurs de richelieu de laval and de pompadour there was secret coming and going between the castle of scot and the house of the spanish ambassador the prince of Salamar. m de malezieux the secretary and friend of the duchess drew up a form of appeal from the french nobility to philip v but nobody had signed it or thought of doing so they got pamphlets written by abbe brigot whom the duchess had sent to spain the mystery was profound and all the conspirators were convinced of the importance of their manoeuvres every day however the regent was informed of them by his most influential negotiator with foreign countries abbe dubois his late tutor and the most depraved of all those who were about him able and vigilant as he was he was not ignorant of any single detail of the plot and was only giving the conspirators time to compromise themselves at last just as a young abbe porto carrero was starting for spain carrying important papers he was arrested at poitiers and his papers were seized next day december seventh seventeen eighteen the prince of salamar's house was visited and the streets were lined with troops word was brought in all haste to the duchess of maine she had company and dared not stir m de chatillon came in joking commenced quote, he was a cold creature who never thought of talking says madame de stael in her memoirs all at once he said really there is some very amusing news they have arrested and put in the bastille for this affair of the spanish ambassador a certain abbe Bri... he could not remember the name and those who knew it had no inclination to help him at last he finished and added the most amusing part is that he has told all and so you see there are some folks in a great fix thereupon he burst out laughing for the first time in his life the duchess of maine who had not the least inclination thereto said yes that is very amusing 
it is enough to make you die of laughing he resumed fancy those folks who thought their affair was quite a secret here's one who tells more than he has asked and names everybody by name the agony was prolonged for some days jokes were beginning to be made about it at the duchess of maine's she kept friends with her to pass the night in her room waiting for her arrest to come madame de stael was reading machiavelli's conspiracies quote, make haste and take away that piece of evidence against us said madame du maine laughingly it would be one of the strongest the arrest came however it was six a m and everybody was asleep when the king's men entered the duke of maine's house the regent had for a long time delayed to act as if he wanted to leave everybody time to get away but the conspirators were too scatterbrained to take the trouble the duchess was removed to dijon within the government and into the very house of the duke of bourbon her nephew which was a very bitter pill for her the duke of maine who protested his innocence and his ignorance was detained in the castle of dorlan in picardy Selimar received his passports and quitted france the less illustrious conspirators were all put in the bastille the majority did not remain there long and purchased their liberty by confessions which the duchess of maine ended by confirming Quote, do not leave Paris until you are driven thereto by force, Alberoni had written to the Prince of Salamar, and do not start before you have fired all the mines. Salamar started, and the mines did not burst after his withdrawal. Conspiracy and conspirators were covered with ridicule. The natural clemency of the regent had been useful. The part of the Duke and Duchess of Maine was played out. The only serious result of Salamar's conspiracy was to render imminent a rupture with Spain. From the first days of the Regency, the old enmity of Philip V towards the Duke of Orléans and the secret pretensions of both of them to the crown of France, in case of little Louis XV's death, rendered the relations between the two courts thorny and strained at bottom, though still perfectly smooth in appearance. It was from England that Abbé Dubois urged the Regent to seek support. Dubois, born in the very lowest position, and endowed with a soul worthy of his origin, was, quote, a little, lean man, wire-drawn, with a light-coloured wig, the look of a weasel, a clever expression, says Saint-Simon, who detested him. All vices struggled within him for the mastery. They kept up a constant hubbub and strife together. Avarice, debauchery, ambition were his gods perfidy, flattery, slavishness, his instruments, and complete unbelief, his comfort. He excelled in low intrigues. The boldest lie was second nature to him, with an air of simplicity, straightforwardness, sincerity, and often bashfulness." In spite of all these vices, and the depraving influence he had exercised over the Duke of Orléans from his earliest youth, Dubois was able, often far-sighted, and sometimes bold he had a correct and tolerably practical mind madame who was afraid of him had said to her son on the day of his elevation to power quote, i desire only the welfare of the state and your own glory i have but one request to make for your honour's sake and i demand your word for it that is never to employ that scoundrel of an abbe dubois the greatest rascal in the world and one who would sacrifice the state and you to the slightest interest end quote the regent promised yet a few months later and dubois was church councillor of state 
and his growing influence with the prince placed him at first secretly and before long openly at the head of foreign affairs james stuart king james the second's son whom his friends called james the third and his enemy chevalier st george had just unsuccessfully attempted a descent upon scotland the jacobites had risen they were crying aloud for their prince who remained concealed in lorraine when at last he resolved to set out and traverse france secretly agents posted by the english ambassador lord stair were within an ace of arresting him perhaps of murdering him saved by the intelligence and devotion of the postmistress of nonancourt he embarked on the twenty sixth of december at dunkirk too late to bring even moral support to the men who were fighting and dying for him six weeks after landing at peterhead in scotland he started back again without having struck a blow without having set eyes upon the enemy leaving to king george i the easy task of avenging himself by sending to death upon the scaffold the noblest victims the duke of orleans had given him a little money had known of and had encouraged his passage through france but had accorded him no effectual aid the wrath of both parties nevertheless fell on him inspired by dubois weary of the weakness and dastardly incapacity of the pretender the regent consented to make overtures to the king of england the spanish nation was favourable to france but the king was hostile to the regent the english loved neither france nor the regent but their king had an interest in severing france from the pretender for ever dubois availed himself ably of his former relations with lord stanhope heretofore a commander of the english troops in spain for commencing a secret negotiation which soon extended to holland still closely knit to england Quote, the character of our regent wrote dubois on the tenth of march seventeen fifteen leaves no ground for fearing lest he should pique himself upon perpetuating the prejudices and the procedure of our late court and as you yourself remark he has too much wit not to see his true interest dubois was the bearer to the hague of the regent's proposals king george was to cross over thither the clever negotiator veiled his trip under the pretext of purchasing rare books he was going he said to recover from the hands of the jews le poussin's famous pictures of the seven sacraments not long ago carried off from paris the order of succession to the crowns of france and england conformably to the peace of utrecht was guaranteed in the scheme of treaty that was the only important advantage to the regent who considered himself to be thus nailing the renunciation of philip v in other respects all the concessions came from the side of france her territory was forbidden ground to the jacobites and the pretender who had taken refuge at avignon on papal soil was to be called upon to cross the alps the english required the abandonment of the works upon the canal of mardyke intending to replace the harbour of dunkirk the hollanders claimed commercial advantages dubois yielded on all the points defending to the last with fruitless tenacity the title of king of france which the english still disputed the negotiations came to an end at length on the sixth of january seventeen seventeen and dubois wrote in triumph to the regent quote, i signed at midnight so there are you quit of servitude your own master and here am i quit of fear the treaty of the triple alliance brought the negotiator before long a more solid advantage he was appointed secretary of state for foreign affairs 
It was on this occasion that he wrote to Mr. Craggs, King George's minister, a letter worthy of his character, and which contributed a great deal towards gaining credit for the notion that he had sold himself to England. Quote, if I were to follow only the impulse of my gratitude, and were not restrained by respect, I should take the liberty of writing to his British Majesty, to thank him for the place with which my Lord the Regent has gratified me, inasmuch as I owe it to nothing but to the desire he felt not to employ in affairs common to France and England anybody who might not be agreeable to the King of Great Britain. End, quote. End of chapter 51, part 2